Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And welcome to Lost in Science for another week. Your weekly half an hour of science on your radio. My name is Claire and today on the show I'm going to be talking about babies. Uh, Not just any kind of babies. Babies that have the genetic material of three different people. Three person babies or three people and a baby. So this... Yes. Um, but not three men and a baby. Because but not three thing, men and a baby. Yeah, yeah. This is uh, one female mitochondrial donor, one uh, female nuclear DNA donor, and a male donor. So the movie got it wrong is what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah, I think the movie got it wrong. I think everyone can agree that the movie got it wrong. There okay. should have been some females involved in that movie in the first place. Yeah. Chris, what do you have for us? Well, I, I'm not talking about dark matter. Well, I am a little bit talking about dark matter, but one, like, <laughs> whenever scientists... someone starts a conversation like that, they are talking about dark matter well, in some way. Okay, so the <laughs> point is that you know physicists are always telling us that there's this mysterious invisible substance that fills the universe, and you gotta you know do you ever think why should we take them at their at their word? Is there any other alternative explanation for what we see? instead of dark matter. And yes, there are alternative theories out there. I'm going to look at the main alternative theory and why it probably doesn't stack up against dark matter. And is this a fringe science theory? Look, it's fairly – there's a lot of work done on it. It, it, I wouldn't call it fringe, but it's not – definitely in the minority, yeah. Dark Mm. matter is the leading thing. But that's why I think it's worth exploring. You know, okay, so if it wasn't dark matter, what would it have to be? Because, yeah, you shouldn't just take people at their word and say there's this invisible thing that makes up most of the universe. Sure. Yeah. Come on, prove it. Yeah. Hmm. And Stu. Well, I'm going to be talking about chances and chances. risk. The TV show? No, not the old TV show. Risk the show. game? No, not the game of risk <laughs> either. Um, I'm going to be talking about Ron Howard, but not that Ron Howard. Oh. oh. So, so many letdowns oh, already. Yeah, I know. This is the most disappointing story of the week. Uh, no, look, I'm going to be talking about basically the risk of dying uh, right. and how we're not we're not very good at calculating risks humans we're, we're really not good at it i mean of course people are more scared of being bitten by a snake than they might be of driving their car even though it's more risky yeah or you know all sorts of different things that you might think are risky are actually not as risky as we think they are so i'm going to actually be talking about a concept called micromorts which is the mm. the risk of suddenly dying. It's not your not your overall risk of dying. It's not your life expectancy or something like that. It's it's the risk of dying suddenly, and it's it's a way of calculating actually how risky certain behaviours are for people. Sounds like the SI data unit for risk. Pretty much, almost, almost. I can't wait to hear about it. On with the show. So we all know it takes two people to make a baby, yeah? Yes, we do. Nod we, your head. We're not here to explain no. the birds and the bees to people. <laughs> or are we? I don't know. Did you explained the moths last week. I do- 
I did explain the moths last week. Yeah, look, everyone gets their genetic material, half from their mum, half from their dad. Actually slightly more than half from their mum. Oh, is that right? Yeah, because the mitochondrial DNA comes from the mother. Okay, so um, did you actually know you can have a baby with genetic material from three people? So this is called mitochondrial donation or three persons and a baby. Is this done in a laboratory? This is done in a laboratory. Right. So I lo- mean, it doesn't yeah. just happen spontaneously. So you kind of I mean, grab, okay, some and also- de- grab some mitochondria and throw it at someone. And- and you, can- <laughs> you can't. It's a groundbreaking medical technique and it has a specific purpose that is to prevent babies being born with incurable and life-threatening genetic diseases that affect specifically their mitochondria. Oh, right. Yes. So this is, this is kind of like an IVF kind of thing. Yeah. Like a branch of IVF. I guess it would be, in vitro mm. fer- fertilization. Mm. Yes. Just to take a closer look at the microscopic level. So, yeah, we talked about human cells. They're surrounded by membrane and they've got all those um, bits and pieces inside. And as you said, they've got the mitochondria and also the cell nucleus. So the mitochondria has DNA and the cell nucleus has DNA, but the mitochondrial DNA only makes up 0.1% of the genetic material. So, so the mitochondria, they're little <clears throat> organelles inside the cell, aren't they? And they're used to create energy. Is that what they are? That's right. That's right. So it's the tiny little organelles um, you might remember from year eight biology. They're sort of like kidney bean shaped with little squiggly bits in the middle. Yeah. Um, if you want to draw them. And they function, yeah, as the energy powerhouses of the cells. So sort of like batteries or your uh, power stations, if you want to get into those sorts of things. The difference between the DNA and the mitochondria, as Stu said, um, and the DNA in the nucleus is it's passed down through the maternal line. So your DNA is inherited from your mother. Her, Her mitochondrial DNA is inherited from her mother and so on and so forth. In a lot of ways, it's better than inheriting a last name. You get to inherit a little bit more DNA. Okay. So it's also how they they can trace matrilineal lines in human. You know, they do those ancestry tests. A lot of that's got to do with mitochondrial DNA because it comes from the mother, and you can't sort of introduce it any other way. Well, Absolutely, you couldn't before. Absolutely, and if you're an evolutionary biologist, mitochondrial DNA is extremely important because you've got a lot less variation in mitochondrial DNA, so you can track how um, closely related species and populations are to each other. Um, but if you have a mutation in your mitochondrial DNA, or if a woman has a mutation in her mitochondrial DNA, um, then this will be passed down to her child. Like there is no doubt that it will be passed down to her child um, and this can cause diseases. So when people suffer from mitochondrial disease, um, their mitochondria don't produce enough energy to make their cells work properly and the mitochondrial diseases can take on many forms and they often affect important body parts like the brain, liver or heart. Some are fatal um, and they affect people in different ways. Um, But at present, there isn't any effective cure that is, um, until the technology has been developed to allow couples with known mitochondrial mutations to access this mitochondrial donation process. So how does mitochondrial donation work? Um, So it involves taking uh, a mother's egg, an affected mother's egg, um, and then, yeah, with a very tiny uh, needle, removing the nucleus and 
Therefore, you take it totally out of the cell, so you're leaving all the faulty mitochondria behind. Um, then you take that nucleus to a donor egg um, with healthy mitochondria, which has uh, the nucleus removed, and then you put that nucleus into that donor mitochondrial cell. So then you've got the donor mitochondria and then you've got the nucleus from the mother. The egg's then fertilised via IVF, um, meaning the embryo technically contains the, the genetic material from three different people, although 99.9% of the genetic material comes from two of those people. Hmm. But technically, it's three. Yeah. Yep. I was going to say, it's an, it looks an interesting process. I can imagine this is quite controversial um, and perhaps it's not, yeah, in like in terms of from a legal point of view, because what it sounds very similar to me is the process used for cloning, where you basically, you get a nucleus with full, basically with a full genetic complement, you put it into an egg that is, um, that then develops as an embryo. Yeah, but the the genetic material that you're taking is still a gamete from that mother. Like yeah, yeah, in still, this case, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. in this case, um, you're... Oh, no, but what I mean yeah. is like the, the, the technique is similar to oh, yeah, what is right. used in cloning yeah. of other species. And so it's kind of edging closer to like a human cloning kind of thing. <laughs> no, I'm just so, saying, that's what it, like the, the technology is similar to that. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, the ethical considerations are quite different. Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the other um, ethical consideration is, you know, you, um, you are creating a – an embryo and hopefully, you know, a baby with possibly three parents. But then you think, well, it's, it's only 0.1% yep, of yep. the genetic material here. So how much? And, you know, it's only coding for a very small num- number of genes mm. that go on to only affect the mitochondria. Um, so is it like all of the phenotype um, for you comes from mostly from your nuclear DNA. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily come from your mitochondrial DNA at all. But I'm, I'm still guessing this is not allowed in a lot of countries. Yeah, well, um, the first baby uh, successfully uh, born from a mitochondrial donor was born in 2016, and it is now legal in the UK. We're a little bit behind in Australia, but that might change soon. This week, the Australian Senate Community Affairs References Committee um, is expected to report on the value and impact of introducing mitochondrial donation into Australia. Um, so, yeah, I mean, obviously there are some ethical considerations to consider um, when it comes to using these using three genetic donors. Um, but when it comes down to it, you know, it's only 0.1% of the DNA, it's total DNA. And, yeah, I think it's a totally reasonable thing. Let's make a baby Oh baby, come on, come on, come on Let's bring another life into this world Yes, you are listening to Lost in Science. My name is Chris and I'm talking about dark matter or not dark matter. So... What dark, do you mean? Well, I'm talking about alternatives to dark matter. So dark matter is I didn't this, know we had a choice in this matter. Well, this is... <laughs> is this like, is this like, um, like, you know, whether you take milk in your coffee? Well, I don't understand. How can there be alternatives to dark matter? Well, okay. So the point is that physicists tell us that there is this dark matter making up a lot of the universe. There's more dark matter in the universe than there is normal matter. And we all go... Okay, I can't see it, but I'll take your word for it. Why do you take their word for it? 
Well, but isn't this based on their estimate of the mass in the universe? Because it doesn't work the way it should if it's only the stuff they can see, right? That's one of the things. And that's certainly when you come to like to dark energy. But um, when the original kind of reason for dark matter was when they looked at how galaxies rotate. Okay, so you, you spot a galaxy, like a spiral galaxy, like our, you know, those swirly ones. and Such all, as the Milky Way. Such as the Milky Way. Great. And all the stars are orbiting around the centre. And you look at how fast they're moving around the centre and you go, okay, so, uh, you know, we, we know the, the dynamics of orbits fairly well. Something is moving around that needs to be this much mass holding it in its orbit, right, in, in, inside. Right. You do the calculations of how many stars you can see in the galaxy, look at how fast they're moving, you're going, they're moving way too fast. They should be being flung off into, into galactic space. This is not cool. So the normal explanation is that there is some dark matter, something that we can't see that is increasing the mass of the galaxy and holding the stars in place. Okay. Sound okay. reasonable? Yeah. 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 But one of the other... I've just other given a name go, to something that you hypothesize exists. Yeah. Great. But other people might go, well, how do you know your, your calculations are right? You know, what if gravity doesn't work the way you think it is? What if your theory of gravity is wrong? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Really? Yeah, people say that. Um, particularly because you look at all these galaxies throughout the universe, now you see all the same relationship, you know, between the speed that they're rotating and um, the amount of visible matter in it. And go, there's like there's a there's a fairly smooth um, curve that you get out of it. You go, well, so there could be dark matter, but clearly there's like some there has to be some strong rule saying how much dark matter there is compared to the the normal matter and the the distribution of it. Otherwise, how could they all be the same? Um, some people go, well, maybe we just you know, we've got gravity wrong. And so they proposed this thing that they called Modified Newtonian Dynamics, or M-O-N-D, MOND for short. They should, have just chucked, they should have chucked another O on the end and then it would be MONDO. But the, they, they should have. Um, it was first proposed in, in the early 80s by the Israeli physicist Mordecai Milgram. And look, it's not a very sophisticated theory. I'll give it that. It's basically just an equation that goes, well, this is the equation that would describe what we see the way the galaxies are rotating. Um, and we're talking Newtonian dynamics here because it doesn't require relativity. It's basically your simple kind of low strength of gravity, enough to make the stars move around the, the galaxy, of course. But, you know, you're either playing with something like the inverse square law of the, the strength that gravity drops off um, with distance, or you're changing things like Newton's second law, which is F equals MA. You add some extra terms into that F equals MA, um, which vary according to the strength of the acceleration. So it's it's kind of it's really, you know kind of out there stuff. There's no, again, there's no really strong theoretical reason from it otherwise just, except just to explain what we see with galaxies. So when it does, when, when basically he's written an equation that matches what's been observed. Yeah. Does that have any effects on different scales, you know, smaller than galaxy scale? Like do, does it match up with what we see in the solar system, for example? Or on Earth. Well, okay, so it, it the, normally the way the equations work there is like a special cutoff acceleration where these, these effects kick in, and it's a very, very low um, figure. So it's hard to, it would be hard to measure on Earth. People are proposing some ways of, of testing on Earth or maybe in the solar system, um, saying that, for instance, you can look at the bit where kind of the points between, say, the, the Earth and the Sun where the gravity kind of cancels out and it's very low strength gravity. Maybe we do some experiments on that point. But no one's actually been able to do an experiment yet. Instead, they go looking at other things to just try and distinguish between dark matter and this mond 
thing. Um, because there is other evidence for dark matter opposed to just the galaxies rotating. That's where it came from originally. But we've seen, seen other things. You know, we've seen things like uh, the famous bullet cluster you're all familiar with. No? Basically, it was galaxy clusters that collided and the collision was so strong that it separated the dark matter from the, uh, from the normal matter. So you can actually map out the distribution of mass, which would be mostly dark matter, by looking where it bends light from more distant galaxies. And you can see that you know, the mass is different to where the, the light matter is. So you know there's some extra mass out there. That's very hard to explain just by filling with the equation of gravity. Right. Uh, there's also stuff like we look at the very beginning of the universe, you know, the light from the Big Bang, and there's like irregularities in that. And some of that, you know, you can see is is comes from from normal matter, which behaves in a certain way. But there's other sort of signals in those irregularities that come from some other type of matter that is not like normal matter, and that presumably is is dark matter. So there's other evidence for dark matter. But when it comes to galaxies, the yeah, this modified Newtonian dynamics does a pretty good job of explaining what you see generally. Um, and dark matter, you kind of have to go, well, there's these strange rules about how dark matter fits into a galaxies that makes it look like. Um, this modified dynamics. However, there has been a recent paper published that challenged this even further because what they did was they looked at 193 galaxies and how they rotated and they tried to work out is what is this cutoff acceleration where this um, effect kicks in and they tried to figure that out and they, they claim that their equations, they couldn't find any acceleration that would fit all the galaxies in their sample and they reckon they've ruled it out to a significance of 10 standard deviations. Um, 10 sigma, that's pretty good, that's pretty as, good. A, as a discovery thing. Um, of course, the, the, the MOND proponents don't, don't like to accept this. They're a, they're a diehard bunch, and they've got their own <laughs> explanations saying, oh, well, you've looked at the wrong galaxies, or you haven't measured the, the rotation properly. And so the argument is still going. It probably won't be resolved until someone actually finds a dark matter particle and says this is what dark matter is, or someone finds another measurement of this um, new dynamics but um in the meantime it's interesting to know that yes there are other ideas out there than dark matter um you know it's one of those things that again you know you kind of take on faith everyone goes oh so they sell us this invisible thing that's all around us and most of the universe we can't see sure um some people do challenge that coming with other ideas it's just that so far dark matter is the best explanation we have across australia on the community radio network you are listening to a lost in science so here we all are sitting in the studio. The door is locked. We're pretty safe, right? <laughs> now what, I'm scared. Na- I mean, <laughs> now that you've said that. What are the chances that someone could suddenly die under these circumstances? Oh, look, I would say it's pretty um, pretty low, but I am sitting behind a desk that is um, wired electronically, so something might go wrong there. Well, that is true. There's a lot of electronic equipment in here, but yep. we're, all, we're all trained to use it. It's all in working order. We should be okay, right? But there's like, you know, health things. We could have some undiagnosed health problem that just kind of strikes That's us. That's true. Or... Don't That's make true. us examine this too much, Stu. No, no, no. I, what, what asteroids, Stu. Was... Asteroids. What I was actually going to say is <laughs> that humans are really not very good at risk analysis. It's not one of our one of our greatest skills. It's basically the whole gambling industry is based on the fact that we are not very good at guessing how things are going to turn out. Some industries uh, have a lot of money depending on uh, the risks of things happening, particularly bad things and particularly bad things happening to people. Um, And I'm sort of talking about things like insurance. The insurance industry has a lot of money riding on 
whether bad things are going to happen and how likely they are to happen, and that's how they figure out their premiums and that sort of thing. So in the late 1970s, uh, some statistical researchers at Stanford University figured out a way of assessing the risk of doing things, just ordinary, everyday things, and then progressively more dangerous things uh, as they got into it. So there was a guy called Ron Howard. Not the Ron Howard. Not Richie Cunningham. Not Richie Cunningham, a different Ron Howard. Um, So he came up with a way of measuring risk to human life called a micromort, which is basically uh, the micro means it's one in a million and mort is mortality. So it's a one in a million chance of dying suddenly. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. In terms of probability, one in a million is the chance that if you flipped a coin 20 times in a row, it would come up the same way every time in a mm. row. That's actually slightly more than one in a million chance. So actually, you know, it's less than one in a million chance. Yeah, that makes okay, yep, yep. Yep. So that's that's pretty unlikely to happen, one in a million. That's that's It's literally one in a million. Now, Hence the saying. Yeah, pretty much everything has risk attached to it. So, for example, getting out of bed carries a risk to someone who's 18 years old. That's one micromort. Well, you've got a one in a million chance, one in a million chance of dying when you're 18 year old getting out of bed. Yeah. So hang on, how many 18 year olds are there in the country and how many should die every day from getting out of bed? Well, not every day necessarily. Is this your whole life, is it? Well, no, it, it, it does vary because as you do these things, your risk increases. If you keep doing them over and over again, obviously your risk increases as well. Mm. But also one, one micromort, it's a one in a million chance. So that... That individual 18-year-old has a one in a million chance. Okay. It's, it's not a huge risk. It's not something you worry about, really. Yeah, but now I'm worried that there's 18-year-olds dying. <laughs> well, just wait until you uh, get into your 90s because then you've got a 463 micromort chance of dying just by getting out of bed. 463 in a million. Yeah. That's still pretty low. Well, there's not that many 90-year-olds <laughs> like that. No, I'm, what I'm saying is like... You know, there's probably more 18-year-olds than 90-year-olds, so there's going to be still probably a comparable amount dying and getting out of bed. Is it dependent Possibly. on how many other people there are? No. It must be because it's, it's in a million. So you've got a chance in a million. It must mean compared to how many other millions of people there are. So you've got a million doing it at once. Because this is how they do the probabilities. They go, how many people die from this thing versus how many people there are? Oh That's how goodness. they work out the probability. So there's micromorts for any given activity. Also includes the duration of the activity. So, for example... Travelling is more dangerous than not travelling, and how it's done is very important. So a lot of people are scared of air travel, for example, Um, and you can understand why. If you've ever seen a fiery plane crash, you can understand why people would be scared of air travel, not in person. You've surely seen films where uh, a plane crashes, Um, and it looks really scary. But you need to travel 1,600 kilometres on a plane to get one micromort of risk. So it's oh, the same as getting low, out of bed. It? Yeah, same as getting out of bed. Depending so on whether does, you're 18 or 90? So it's just <laughs> yes. 1,600 kilometres, that's about from Melbourne to Sydney and back. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one micromort. Now, on the other hand, travelling in a car, you only need to travel 370 kilometres to get one micromort of risk. Wow. So it's so a that's, small fraction. Yeah, one-fifth the, the micro-risk. Yeah, yeah. and uh, on a motorcycle... You have to travel 9.7 kilometres no. to get one micromort. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So 
obviously what you're doing and how you're doing it makes a huge difference to your risk. Now, is there a website that um, I can spend all night looking at my Oh, yeah. There's, there's, you put Micromort into Google and you see what comes up. Now, you're probably thinking you're just going to walk everywhere, right? You're not going to take any of these transport Don't options. Don't do it, Claire. Walk in a bubble. <laughs> 27 kilometres of walking will increase your risk by one Micromort. Basically, we are at a daily average of about 20 micromorts a day, regardless of what we're doing. So over over the whole population, it's around 20 micromorts per person. Obviously, some people have higher risk because they're doing riskier things. And so, also different ages. Yeah, absolutely. The age yeah. does make a difference. Um, and, yeah, and where you are in the world. Definitely, definitely. Definitely. So one of the things people often overreact to is sharks. You know, getting, <laughs> getting bitten or eaten by a shark, very sure. scary concept. Hardly ever happens. There's a 0.125 micromort risk of being eaten by a shark in Australia. So they're just general across the whole country. So it probably varies yeah. depending on what you're doing. Like if you're in Alice Springs, probably your chances. <laughs> Absolutely slim. Yeah. Um, those land sharks are very out. hard yeah. to come. But this, is, but this is the average risk. This is what they're doing. But if you were in the place where the sharks were, then obviously mm. it's only going to happen Slightly when higher. you're under those conditions. But uh, you actually have... 56 times the chance of dropping dead while attempting a marathon than being eaten by a shark in Australia. So very rarely do people get killed by sharks. Quite often people have heart attacks and and various other life-ending injuries when they're running marathons. Chris, that uh, marathon you were training for? No, now I'm just thinking about those ultra triathlons where they do a marathon and they swim as well. Yeah. But okay, so... 0.125 0.125 uh-uh. micromort risk of being eaten by a shark, 56 times 0.125. Oh, it's, pretty low. it's, pretty it's a low. very small yeah, number. Okay. So, you know, you, you can make it sound scary no matter what you're trying to present if you just use it as relative risk. Yeah. But in terms of absolute risk, it's still pretty low. Yeah. Um, okay. So uh, jumping out of a perfectly good airplane seems inherently risky. Skydiving. Uh, I mean, so long as you've got a parachute, well, <laughs> it becomes a lot less yeah. risky. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's actually about 10 micromorts, depending on how well-trained someone is. <laughs> so, okay, so 10 micromorts for jumping out of a plane, skydiving with a parachute. Um, compared to something we've all done, safe as houses. Uh, on the day we're born, there's 430 micromorts of risk for a newborn baby Aww. in the first day they're born. Wow. But that's just because so many things can go wrong. Yeah, and luckily they're already in the hospital. That's right. That's probably why we invented hospitals, because we know this. Yeah. This is why when you're ill or you're just arriving in the world, you maybe should talk to a doctor about it. Um, (laughs) Now, if you want to try something really risky, what do you reckon is, what do you reckon might be the riskiest thing someone could do? Hmm. Stuntmen. Stuntmen. Running with the bulls. Running with the bulls is up there. Um, one of the, one of the riskiest things you can possibly do is climbing mountains. Oh, okay. Mountain really climbing. high mountains well, over five thousand meters. Climbing Mount Everest yes. has a micromort risk of just under thirty eight thousand micromorts. In other words, one in twenty six chance of not coming down again. Sure. But that's wow. not just any mountain. That's a well, mountain. Well, that is the largest. At, that is the tallest mountain in the yeah, world. Yeah, that's eight kilometers in the sky. Yeah, yeah. But and but if you look at if you rank mountains in terms of difficulty and height and all those things, there is a there is a, a, a gradient. Grade. There's a gradient. Yeah, it's a steep yeah. slope. So look, comparatively, there's nothing that is risk free. Not entirely, uh, and most of the risks we 
probably have to worry about are in absolute terms very tiny. And in most ways, the world is getting safer all the time because, because in part, we can identify the actual risk of things by using the micromort. Uh, we, can, we can identify the real risk areas where we need to improve safety and you know, stop people getting injured and dying. Um, but you know, maybe, maybe people should just stop climbing Mount Everest now. I mean, you know, we already know it's there. have time for on another episode of lost in science this week thank you very much for tuning in lost in science is recorded in the studios of 3cr in melbourne and broadcast across australia on the community radio network with the kind support of the community broadcasting foundation you can get in touch with us. We would love to hear from you. You can find us on email at lostinsci at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook at Lost in Science on 3CR um, or find us on Twitter. We are Lost in Science 1 on uh, the old Twitter handles. And you can find us on your favourite podcasting service, whatever that may be. And while you're there, may as well leave us a comment and a review so other people can find us. Or you can tune in once again next week when Stu, Chris and Claire get lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.